Unfiltered Hollywood for Smart People for Tuesday, November 12th, 2019. I'm Nico. I'm your host. Talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them. Happy Tuesday. On this frigid afternoon in suburban Connecticut. Damn, dude. It's like 30 degrees already. Mid-November. Ugh. Came in like a wrecking ball, as always. Ugh, never hit so hard in love. All I wanted was to move to Florida. That's how I feel on this Tuesday. You know, it's cold. It's snowy. There's a light dusting in the air. What better day to launch the new Disney streaming service, Disney Plus? What better day to cut a check to Bob Iger and the brain trust at the Disney Corporation. I can't think of a better Tuesday afternoon activity than to cozy up by the television set and watch the world according to Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> we'll get to all that in a second. Um, obviously a huge day for the Disney Corporation, a huge day for streaming media, a huge day for the industry at large. Disney plus is here. The streaming wars are in full swing. We talked about Apple TV Plus a little over a week ago, which was met to, I guess, mixed reviews, both on a content level and also on a technological level. People were not only uh, shrugging their shoulders at the programming from the Apple Corporation, but also their strategy, how they rolled out their service, where it was available, um, you know, the, the content selection Apple TV Plus jury is still out on. Disney Plus, on the other hand, for the past four to five months, has been looking like a total home run. It just feels like Disney did everything right. You cannot escape advertisements for Disney Plus. They're on YouTube, they're on billboards, they're on Monday Night Football. I think with Apple TV Plus, consumers could sort of plead ignorance and not understand exactly what's going on. That is not the case with Disney Plus. Everyone is aware. Disney has a new streaming service. It costs seven bucks a month. It has all the Star Wars stuff, all the Marvel stuff, all the Pixar stuff. Anything a kid and some adults may need is available at DisneyPlus.com. So on that front, in terms of the advertising spends and the PR battle, Disney Plus is a big winner. And I will also say, just like on an anecdotal level, there's no data yet, and it's going to be several months before we can accurately gauge the impact of these streaming services on an anecdotal level people are into this like i've seen several facebook friends people i follow on twitter sign up for the service already and they're binging like old episodes of the sweet life of zach and cody (laughs) they're watching classic disney films like camp nowhere davy crockett king of the wild frontier uh (laughs) These are real names I'm reading off. Uh, Sky Runners. Don't look under the bed. Here's what I'm realizing, guys. Again, I don't want to make too snap a judgment call. I'm not sure there's much for me on Disney+. Plus. You know? I'm not sure there's much for me. I'm sure there is something for many of you. And look, I love The Simpsons as much as the next guy. And I will be taking advantage of every Simpsons episode available on the platform. But like, 
I don't have a ton of nostalgia for the computer wore tennis shoes. <laughs> I don't have a ton of nostalgia for Halloween Town High or <laughs> I can't believe these are real things. <laughs> Johnny Tsunami about a surfer in Alaska. Yeah, this is real. It's impressive. The catalog is impressive. And the fact that people are excited about it goes to show you what a catalog filled with nostalgic properties can do. And that is the one thing missing from Apple TV+. There is not the catalog of like, oh, I remember that Disney Channel movie when I was 12. Oh, yeah. I loved watching That's So Raven with Raven Simone. There's just none of that with Apple because it's not part of their strategy. Disney Plus, on the other hand, seems to be fully fueled by nostalgia. That is the play. And look, you're not going to go broke with a strategy like that. Nostalgia is a bankable currency in popular entertainment, especially in 2019. And that's why a lot of the uh, social media buzz has been positive because people love returning to a fonder era in their lives, or at least in an era that they perceive to be a fonder time. Um, I just feel like the excitement for something like that will fizzle out quickly. You know? I, I, I get for the first two weeks, it's going to be awesome comparing notes with your friends. Like, oh yeah, did you catch the Brave Little Toaster? Or whatever the hell that movie is over the weekend. I was watching Chicken Little myself. <laughs> hey, let's have a Disney Plus party and watch Sharpay's Fabulous Adventure together. <laughs> Man, this joke never gets old. <laughs> and I think that'll be all well and good for like two to three weeks. But at a certain period of time, the original programming is going to have to outpace the catalog. Disney can do this because they've been around for a hundred years and they're really good at eventizing movies and eventizing television shows. And like, this is their bread and butter. They can generate buzz on social media and make people excited for the Disney brand. Um, But at a certain period of time, like we're going to take flubber for granted, you know? Like, we're going to take heavyweights for granted. It's no longer going to matter that Aladdin and The Lion King and Cinderella are available on the platform. You're going to have to give us original programming and good original programming. And on that front, and this is sort of the interesting thing about it, I I was very underwhelmed by the new stuff available on the platform. Let me read to you. This is everything. If you go to DisneyPlus.com, by the way, and you've signed up for the seven-day trial or whatever, or maybe you were a sucker and you signed up for three years of Disney Plus in advance, um, th- there's a tab that says Originals, and here's what I see. Family Sundays, which looks like just an educational preschooler show. Um, Spark Shorts which are, I guess, just a bunch of animated shorts. I don't know if they're Pixar-related or not. Pixar in real life? Is that, like, a reality show? What? This live-action series brings iconic characters and moments from Pixar films into the real world 
Filmed on location in and around New York City, the series surprises and delights real people in real locations when they least expect it. And the screenshot here is of uh, of Wally walking through Times Square. Um, okay. Uh, Forky asks a question based on the Toy Story 4 character played by Tony Hale. The Marvel Hero Project looks like another reality show docu-series. The Imagineering Story, which is, I guess, a documentary about Walt Disney. Uh, Noel, which is like a Hallmark Christmas movie with Bill Hader and Anna Kendrick. The World According to Jeff Goldblum, which is like Anthony Bourdain meets the guy from Jurassic Park. Uh, Encore, another reality show, this time with Kristen Bell going back to her old high school. High School Musical, colon, the musical, colon, the series. I didn't misspeak. Uh, Pass. Lady and the Tramp, a live-action retelling of the the classic Disney film. Lady and the Tramp, no thank you. And, uh, of course, The Mandalorian, which we'll get to in a second. But, you know... I don't know. Maybe kids don't care. Right? Maybe kids don't care, and I'm just thinking about this all wrong. And the platform is just not made for me or anyone else of my age beyond the first two weeks after we've watched my favorite Martian for the 10th time. (laughs) You know, I'm starting to think like, you know, me and my fellow man children have convinced ourselves that the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the Star Wars Universe are for us when really they are genetically engineered to get 12 to 14-year-olds in movie theaters. You know? (laughs) Like, we've been talking ourselves into this idea that, oh, yeah, Star Wars is our thing. When really, like, Disney's only interested in Kylo Ren action figures. Disney's only interested in C-3PO Halloween costumes. Yeah, so maybe I'm being cynical. I I, I don't know. Um, I I uh, am certainly impressed with the catalog. I think the fact that the site crashed this morning is at least some evidence of the demand. And again, anecdotally, it seems like people are signing up in big numbers. And Disney says that the subscriptions have outpaced their projections. So good for them. This is working. This is generating buzz. There was talk about the... Greedo shot first scene yet again this morning because <laughs> I guess uh, Star Wars A New Hope re-edited the scene yet again um, and and what did Greedo say in that scene? McClunky? <laughs> oh this just won't die McClunky! Boom. Yeah you know that that is that is what Disney has over its competitors right? That excitement, that fan engagement, that viral sensibility, you're just not going to get that out of the Irishman. You're not going to get that out of Roma. You're not going to get that out of the morning show. You know, you're not going to get it out of any of these expensive uh, prestige buys from Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Apple. It's just, you know, you're never going to generate that amount of conversation because you don't have Star Wars and you don't have Marvel in your library. So this, I would say, of all of the impending streaming services entering the streaming wars, 
this is the safest bet. This has the highest ceiling because kids love movies, kids love television shows, kids love superheroes, and kids love Star Wars, right? And so a platform built for their demographic, built for their interests, is always going to have a baseline level of success. Uh, And it's just a lot easier. You know, it's just kind of funny. We're going crazy about a Lady and the Tramp remake. And, you know, meanwhile, Netflix is investing $175 million into a Martin Scorsese gangster film. And it's like, wow, it just it's so much easier making this for kids, isn't it? It's so much easier. That being said, I do want to talk about The Mandalorian, uh, which I watched this morning. They're doing this one episode a week thing, um, which is a choice. It's not a surprising choice. And uh, it may be the correct choice, but Disney is foregoing the binge model in favor of a traditional weekly release. We'll see how that goes. For now, that means we only have one episode of The Mandalorian available to stream. And that episode is a whopping 40 minutes long. Fuck yeah. After watching an hour of Jason Momoa speaking in tongues, like I, I just saw that 40 minute runtime and I was salivating. Oh my God. So brisk. So lean. No fat on that bone. 40 minutes. I'll bang it out in the morning. I'm done. I don't have to make an event out of every TV episode. You know, I'm really sick and tired of the bloated runtimes. And this is like not the worst thing in the world. I mean, I would rather have more of a good thing than less of a good thing. But like the the byproduct of peak TV and HBO doing their thing is that there is so much excess in television shows. Like I was experiencing that watching Watchmen. Or, again, all those Apple shows, C, For All Mankind, even The Morning Show. Just make this 45 minutes. Get in, get out. Tell me what you have to tell me, and we're done. I don't need the fat. Like, movies are supposed to be bloated. Movies are supposed to be an experience. You sit down in a theater. You are committed for an extended period of time. You give yourself up to the product. Television is supposed to be quick and digestible. You know? I'm supposed to anticipate the next not feel bogged down by the current episode so 40 minute runtimes i totally co-sign sign me up for more anyway let's get into this first episode of the mandalorian i watched it this morning as soon as i could um and uh, you know this is the interesting thing about franchise filmmaking in 2019 and disney is at the forefront of this they've been doing it with marvel for over 10 years now, and they're just starting to do it with Star Wars. There's this idea that within franchise filmmaking, you can Trojan horse other types of stories and genres under the banner of something familiar, right? And that is, I guess, the only plausible way to make interesting artistic stuff within mainstream entertainment because people only see Marvel movies and only see Star Wars movies. So if you want to sell your psychedelic sci-fi picture, you have to do it under the Doctor Strange label. If you're going to sell your uh, Soviet spy thriller, you have to do it under Captain America. If you're going to sell your 
quirky heist movie. It's got to be called Ant-Man. And uh, that that's sort of this new theory of franchise filmmaking. Under this cinematic universe, a plethora of interesting stories can be told in different ways. And so now Disney is doing the same thing with Star Wars. And to a certain extent, that was the attempt of the spinoff films. Rogue One, Solo, they kind of feel like their own thing. But The Mandalorian is the first real attempt at a gritty genre story in the Star Wars universe, right? Here's my problem with this line of thinking and why I find the Trojan horse philosophy to be total bullshit, Um, (laughs) to put it frankly. Star Wars is the genre. Marvel is the genre. They are so popular, so adored, so familiar and so tonally specific that if a new Marvel film like, say, the Doctor Strange sequel or Black Panther or Captain Marvel were to challenge those preconceptions too much and attempt to be truly a separate and unique genre exercise, the audience gets turned off. Star Wars is so iconic, so larger than life, so specific to a certain certain segment of filmgoer that you can't truly make a unique genre movie under the Star Wars label. These are still corporate entities, right? Like, I know you would love to make a Star Wars Western. You would love, 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 love to make a Marvel horror movie. But that in and of itself is kind of a contradiction, right? That's sort of an oxymoron. Because Marvel doesn't do horror. If you make a horror movie, you're no longer making a Marvel movie. And that is the genre Disney feels most obliged to. And so I'm watching the first episode of The Mandalorian. And like, there are elements of Star Wars in it. Uh, I will not spoil the ending of the first episode, but there is a clear allusion to uh, the main uh, Star Wars series, and I'm sure there will be ties to one specific character. And of course, there's a bounty hunter that looks exactly like Boba Fett, and there are allusions to the Empire because this uh, series takes place after the events of Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. So all that stuff is in there, and of course it has to be in there. But I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, man, I just want this to be Breaking Bad. You know what I mean? Like, I am way interested in the dark underbelly of the Star Wars universe. I am super interested in Werner Herzog's crime boss. I am super interested in this interconnected network of bounty hunters. Like, this shit is really cool, but I want you to go all the way with it. And that first episode of The Mandalorian, uh, it kind of just felt like darkly lit Star Wars. It just felt like another Star Wars story without the charm of the main films, without the larger-than-life sensation that you get watching The Last Jedi, you know, without the, the blaring score and the incredible effects and the fight sequences and this feeling of hope and wonder. I mean, there were no lightsabers in this episode, you know? There was no Death Star in this episode, And, like, that's fine. You don't have to make that show. But it just felt like 
you know, it had one foot in the Star Wars universe and one foot in the PG-13 HBO crime universe. And I just want them to pick a side, you know? And again, this is the problem with telling interesting genre stories in mainstream entertainment. The first obligation is always to the mainstream aspect of it. It's always to the bottom line. It is always to the intellectual property. Um, I don't know. It was just darkly lit Star Wars. Not that that's a bad thing, I guess. I mean, I love Star Wars. You know me. I'm a sucker for this shit. Um, ugh. Eh, I, I I don't know. I, I'll give it a shot. I mean, it's a uh, it's a great A production. Right. Looks like a million bucks. They spent a lot of money on the CGI. That's what surprised me most. I think there were a lot of creatures that clearly cost a lot of money uh, in this first episode. So they did not spare any expense. And John Favreau is a competent hand. Uh, I don't think he directed any of these episodes, but he served as showrunner. So, you know, there is, again, going to be a high floor for what this thing can be. And that first episode also kept a lot of the cards close to the vest you know like we didn't see the main character's face at any point pedro pascal was underneath a bounty hunter uniform the entire time uh so we're gonna have to wait a couple episodes for that you know there wasn't a ton of plot we're gonna we didn't get any giancarlo esposito we only got a little Werner herzog uh a little carl weathers i think the main female lead gina carano was not even in that episode either right yeah, so there was not much plot, and it was only 40 minutes long, and it it has me. It's got the Star Wars name. You have my attention. But go for it. You know what I mean? Go for it. And I'm not sure Disney, and I guess in general, Disney Plus is interested in that. But that's okay, too. Kids, enjoy Disney Plus this weekend. <laughs> uh, as I am uh, watching Operation Dumbo drop. I I am sure you will get down to some Lady and the Tramp in live action. Let's take a break. When we come back, more from the world of popular culture. Because that's the show. It's cultured. We'll be right back. All right. I want to talk about one of the dumbest controversies I've seen in a while. (laughs) No, we're not talking about Scorsese again. I want to talk about this James Dean thing. Um, <laughs> this just makes no sense to me. Maybe I'm I'm being a simpleton about this. You know, maybe I am being uh, needlessly obtuse. But uh, here's the story from CNN. More than six decades after his death, James Dean has been, quote, cast in a new film. And some people are angry about it. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Dean will appear in the forthcoming Vietnam-era action film, Finding Jack. Magic City Films, the production company behind the film, announced that it had obtained the rights to use Dean's image from his estate, and using CGI technology would include actual footage and photos of Dean in the movie. The Rebel Without a Cause actor died in a car crash at the age of 24 in 1955. Since then, Dean has become an iconic figure in news of his posthumous casting stoked anger among even some of his most famous admirers. Okay, let's break this down before we get to the outrage. Uh, I have never heard of Magic City Films. 
I have never heard of the two directors behind this movie, Finding Jack. As far as I can tell, no other actors have been cast. And uh, who even knows if there's a script? I guess Anton Ernst and Tati Golick are the two directors attached to this movie. They have uh, nothing of note. Nothing of note on their IMDb page. I see a movie called Momentum starring Morgan Freeman and uh, no one else. And (laughs) I guess they produced this movie and it was quite bad. So let's be very clear about something. This news story is what we in the biz call a fucking publicity stunt. That's what this is. Because Anton Ernst and Tati Golick may be good businessmen, may be good at generating buzz online, but they're certainly not good at making movies. So let's not uh, disguise this press release with anything that even closely resembles artistry. That's not what this is. They paid a lot of money to get James Dean's likeness in their film. And who knows even if the movie gets made. Like this may be the last we find out uh, about Finding Jack. This may be the end of it. (laughs) So that's point number one. Take everything with a grain of salt. Now, let's get to some of the complaints. Here is Captain America star Chris Evans. Uh, He tweeted this on Wednesday. I'm sure he'd be thrilled with an eye-rolling emoji referencing what he believed would be Dean's reaction to such news. Here's another quote. This is awful. Maybe we can get a computer to paint us a new Picasso or write a couple new John Lennon tunes. The complete lack of understanding here is shameful. Elijah Wood, star of the Lord of the Rings films, echoed some of those frustrations. Nope, he says in all caps, this shouldn't be a thing. (laughs) Y'all. Y'all. Um, James Dean's not in this movie. I don't care what the filmmakers say. I don't care what CNN wrote in their blog post. James Dean ain't in this movie because James Dean is six feet underground in Los Angeles, California. James Dean's dead, bro. Mort, as my grandfather would say. Martha. He ain't coming back. He's not an actor anymore because he's not a person anymore. He's dead. So, like, (laughs) all this outrage about, oh, has technology gone too far? Has CGI gone too far? No, it hasn't because James Dean's not in this movie. But they're recreating his likeness. Eh! He's not in this movie. There's an animated character that looks like him in the movie. There's a guy that's going to be voicing a character who sounds quite similar to how James Dean sounded in 1955. Yes, that is all true. But James Dean's not in this movie. He's a cartoon. You know what I'm saying? He's a cartoon. Just like Sonic the Hedgehog ain't really in the new Sonic the Hedgehog film. 
There's a little animated blue thing that resembles the character of Sonic the Hedgehog, but Sonic the Hedgehog is fake. He ain't real, bro. There is no difference, absolutely no difference between what's happening in Finding Jack and what's happening in the Winston Churchill biopic, Darkest Hour, starring Gary Oldman. There's no difference because guess what? Winston Churchill ain't in (laughs) Darkest Hour. (laughs) That is an artistic recreation of Winston Churchill. He's played by Gary Oldman. James Dean isn't playing anyone. In fact, a computer is playing James Dean. That's what this is. That's what movies do. Right? They're fake. It'd be one thing if we took a shovel to that Hollywood graveyard... And dragged out the corpse of James Dean, put some sunglasses, a leather jacket, and had him riding on a motorcycle. If you want to say, you know what, that's in bad taste. We shouldn't be putting corpses on motorcycles. I'm with you there. You know what, in that specific instance, Hollywood would have gone too far. But this happens all the time. It's an animated recreation of a guy that's dead. He's not in the movie. In fact, if I here's what would piss me off. This is the only thing that would piss me off. If I, and this actually may be the case, I'm in the theater, I'm watching the movie Finding Jack. I highly doubt I will actually see this movie because, again, I don't think it's going to get made. And if it is made, I think it's going to be terrible. But if I'm in the theater and the credits roll at the end of that movie and top build is James Dean, that would piss me off. That would piss me off to no end. Because the credit should read CGI technology. Or whoever voiced the character of James Dean. James Dean's not actually in the movie. Because again, James Dean, not a real person. Am I being needlessly obtuse? But be honest with me here, people. Like, I don't understand the controversy. (laughs) Movies have cartoon characters in them all the time. You know, and again, like uh, they did this with Rogue One, a Star Wars story, right? Um, uh, Peter Cushing, who played uh, Tarkin in the original Star Wars, they brought his character back in CGI form. But was Peter Cushing credited in Rogue One? Let Let me look this up. I could totally be wrong. I could be off base here. Uh... No, he's not credited. Okay, someone else played Grand Moff Tarkin in Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. And the character looked like Peter Cushing, but it wasn't Peter Cushing. You know, I think, honestly, look, the concerns that uh, CGI is soon going to replace the actor, because the better the technology gets the less need we have for realism and the less need we have to film Robert De Niro and Al Pacino as they are, I think those concerns are a bit overstated. Uh, I don't think it's ever going to be economical to hire a, uh, a CGI artist to spend four months creating a physical person 
as opposed to just hiring an actor to do it. And like, we still need movie stars, right? Uh, so there's still a human element, right? You don't have the movies without that human element. I think those concerns are overstated, but legitimate. The James Dean aspect of this, though, I find totally absurd. We depict dead people on screen all the time. And whether it's through the use of acting or technology, it's the same principle. Film likes bringing people back from the dead. It is, in fact, one of the charms of cinema. That you can experience what a person actually was like without seeing them firsthand. Just because this one involves some computers, you know, doesn't change the fundamental principle. And also, this is clearly a gimmick. So settle the hell down, right? (laughs) It's going to look corny. Of course it's going to look corny. You know how expensive that is? To recreate that? I mean, look, Disney (laughs) has more money than God. They could bankrupt several third world countries, you know, and they couldn't do it effectively in Rogue One. It's really hard. The Irishman cost $175 million. They're not going to get the funding for this. Everybody settle the hell down. This is is an, an unfounded controversy. Everybody relax. Captain America, chill the hell out. All right? Chill the hell out. And you've got a lot of nerve talking about how CGI is destroying uh, cinema after Avengers Endgame became the highest grossing film of all time. You've got a lot of nerve, Steve Rogers. All right, let's take another break. When we come back, some Netflix talk. So this is actually an interesting story uh, and one that flew under my radar when it first happened. I don't know why, but I didn't hear anything about it until this past week. So let me just read the article for you. Netflix CEO Reed Hastings is defending the company's decision to pull an episode of Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj earlier this year. The episode, which explored the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia and was critical of Saudi prince Mohammed bin Salman was pulled in January after the country's government complained, sparking widespread criticism. Again, I didn't hear anything about this. Uh, <laughs> kind of entertainment commentator are you, Nico? Who gave you a podcast, pretty boy? Uh, <laughs> so, if you recall, uh, this is, I believe in relation to the Washington Post journalist who was murdered in Saudi Arabia last year. Many suspect that the Saudi Saudi Arabian government was involved in the guy's assassination. Uh, The reporter's name was Jamal Khashoggi. um, And that was, you know, obviously a big story in October of last year. Hassan Minhaj tackled it on the show and the Saudi Arabian government was not happy with it because Netflix is all over the world. It's a global company. A version of Netflix exists in Saudi Arabia. They said, take the episode down. Netflix complied. Um, here is what Reed Hastings said during a New York Times conference. He was asked about the incident. Here's the quote. 
Well, we're not in the news business. We're not trying to do truth to power. We're trying to entertain. And we can pick fights with governments about newsy topics, or we can say because the Saudi, uh, the Saudi government lets us have shows like Sex Education that show a very liberal lifestyle and show very provocative and important topics. Uh, and so we can accomplish a lot more by being entertainment and influencing a global conversation about how people live than trying to be another news channel. So first thing I thought after reading this story was what the fuck is sex education? (laughs) Man, Netflix has too many shows. And second thought was, oh, NBA, China, similar issue. Right. Foreign governments attempting to censor American speech. How do we stand up for democracy and our values while still maintaining a profitable financial relationship with foreign governments? Right. This is a massive conundrum, and it has been a conundrum since the dawn of global commerce. Every major American corporation has had to deal with some variation of this. From Coca-Cola to McDonald's to Walmart to Nike to, yes, the NBA and to Netflix. The only difference between Coca-Cola and Netflix is that Coca-Cola doesn't have comedians working for them. They don't have artists working for them, writers and directors, right? Those people are naturally provocative, just like NBA athletes. They are inherently provocative people uh, because that's the personality Both are a form of show business. Both are a form of art. Both are a form of entertainment. And stuff gets dicey on a global scale for sure. Um, I did, however, have a slightly different reaction to this story as opposed to the NBA thing. And I can't quite put my finger on why. Still trying to parse that out. But I wasn't as triggered by this. Like, obviously, I'm a big free speech guy, big First Amendment guy. I stand the First Amendment, bro. I'm here for it. I like ideas. I like words. Give me more ideas and more words. Censorship? Not cool. Down with the censors. No matter what country's doing it. And I'm certainly not here for an American company taking part in that censorship. So, like, on a moral level, yeah, kind of fucked up. But what Reed Hastings said here, although a lot of it is bullshit was weirdly honest. And I think I responded to that honesty. As opposed to the NBA, which seemed to totally obfuscate the whole thing. Like, I recall Adam Silver and Daryl Morey and others in the Rockets organization being like, yeah, man, we just play basketball. James Harden said this. Like, we love our Chinese fans. We just want to play. We're not really here for the politics. And that's just a bold-faced lie. Because, of course, the NBA made as much money (laughs) bowing down to China as it did speaking out on American political issues. Part of the NBA's brand was free speech. Part of the NBA's brand uh, uh, was LeBron James and his HBO show taking a knee during the national anthem. Uh, speaking out to Donald Trump, which like is all well and good. You are allowed to do that. And I applaud you for doing that, especially if you're able to make political discourse profitable. I have a real problem, though, when China says something, all of a sudden you're just athletes. The hypocrisy there is what pissed me off to no end. And 
there is an element of that with the Reed Hastings issue. Um, uh, I just don't know if Netflix has a specific political point of view, right? Maybe I'm way off base, but I bought the argument, eh, this is just entertainment. It's weak. It's weak as fuck. No, no doubt about it. It's totally weak. I wouldn't have done it. And it is uh, arguably immoral to uh, to cater to the demands of uh, of an evil regime. Actually, it's definitely immoral. But is it the same as the NBA? I'm not sure the same hypocrisy exists here. I'm really not sure. Now, in regards to the show itself, right? Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj. When Reed Hastings is like, yeah, we're not really doing truth to power here. Like, then why is Patriot Act on the platform? You know what I'm saying? Like, why even make that show? A show with, uh, you know, a, a comedian of Middle Eastern descent speaking about American politics uh, from a very specific political point of view, lampooning our modern political system. Like, that is the definition of truth to power, isn't it? Why is this show even on the air? Why are you making this if you are not in the news business, quote unquote? If you don't want to dip your toe into politics? That's what confuses me more than anything else. Right? A show like Patriot Act, although I'm not like a fan of the show, I've never watched it, I must be honest. (laughs) I saw Hassan Minaj on an episode of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, and I'm like, eh, yeah, the guy's all right. Uh, <laughs> so that is my that is the extent of my knowledge uh, of Hassan Minaj but I just don't understand why does this show exist if truth to power is not your aim I don't know it's a complicated situation it, it, it certainly is complicated and it's only going to get messier uh, you know the 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 more global these entertainment companies get I mean, the, the more global our nation's economy gets, right? Um, we export our shit to a lot of places, and those places are often very scary places, and those governments are often not the most forgiving and accepting people of free speech. And so, look, you can take the cash or you can stand on principle. I'm good with you doing either. I am not okay with you doing both. That is my position on the NBA, Netflix, and any other company that is uh, in a similar predicament. All right. A few more little things. Colin Farrell playing the Penguin in the upcoming Batman movie. Got reaction. Too many villains. I think I talked about this last week, right? We got Paul Dano as the Riddler. We got Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman. Now we got Colin Farrell as the Penguin, uh, a role that was initially intended for Jonah Hill. Pattinson is in there as Batman. Can you give me one villain? I miss the days of one superhero villain. I really do, man. I long for those fonder times when it was just Spider-Man versus the Green Goblin, and that's all we had to deal with. When it was just Batman versus the Joker, and there wasn't some uh, hidden attempt at, at world building. Ugh. 
I do love me some Colin Farrell, though. Colin Farrell, I think, may be the most underrated actor on the planet. I, I stand for that guy, man. It, it, he is by far and away best part of True Detective Season 2. Not like that's saying much, but I adore his performance in that. I love In Bruges. The Lobster is like, okay. Love him in Widows. Oh, he's great in Widows. As the mayoral candidate, or was he a senator? Alderman? I forget what the position was. He's Robert Duvall's son in Widows. And he's just chewing scenery the whole time. Yeah, I I am pro Colin Farrell in any movie. Never mind a Batman movie. But I don't know. Let's just cut out a couple of those bad guys, huh? And just announced today, oh, Ricky Gervais back at the Golden Globes for a fifth time. He claims this is his last time. I don't believe him, nor should you. Man, do we need this right now? Oh, (laughs) we need this right now. (laughs) At a time where Hollywood has inflated its head to the size of a hot air balloon, do we need Ricky Gervais to cut them down a few pegs? I think Ricky should host everything. That's my point of view. Here's the thing about award shows, and this is the reason why so many of these shows have gotten it wrong in the past. Um, The job of the award show MC is to comment on the absurdity of the process. Right? They're supposed to be the guy in the room that looks around at all the rich people handing each other trophies and says, what the hell are we doing here? You know? (laughs) The presenters hand out the trophies. The host tells the recipient to shove the trophy up their ass. And if... (laughs) If that fundamental process is broken, why are we watching? Because here's the thing about the Oscars. Here's the thing about the Emmys. And certainly here's the thing about the Golden Globes. The only people taking the show seriously are the ones in the audience. Because people at home don't give a shit about who wins best supporting actor in a drama. You need the audience avatar You need the guy to knock these rich fucks down a few pegs. And Ricky Gervais is better at it than anyone. Ricky Gervais is in the vein of Don Rickles, uh, in the vein of Johnny Carson, in, in the vein of guys that can just knock you down a few pegs and roast you, leave you scalding hot after you've been sitting in the oven for an hour. Ricky Gervais is a genius at this. Um, and I, I cannot wait for the Golden Globes again. How lovely. It won't be Jimmy Fallon and Andy Samberg doing parody songs. Finally, a guy that just goes for it. Knock these guys down. You know, as a guy that loves award shows, you know how crazy I go for the Oscars. And we'll be talking Oscars from now until mid-February when the show finally airs, as much as I love award shows, they take themselves so seriously. And we need a breath of fresh air like Ricky Gervais to put put it in its place. All right. Uh, that is going to do it for another edition of Cultured. Thanks, guys, for stopping by. I hope you come back soon. I'll leave some Entenmann's out for you. (laughs) I'll leave the coffee on the stove. 
Maybe soon you come back. Go to the website, too many thoughtsmedia.com, tmt.media for short. Why is this a thing this week? Uh, what did we do for that show? Oh, <laughs> we did Deathbed, colon, The Bed That Eats, an old artsy horror movie from 1977. Check that out on the website. Movie Hall of Fame. We're doing the year 1994, a much anticipated episode. The year of Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump. We have to decide the best movie of that year. It's going to be available this Thursday. Uh, I'll be doing a Nico show certainly at some point. Hopefully a Two Cents Radio as well. Uh, And Fantasy Book of the Month is available. That's Nick's podcast with his friends uh, talking fantasy literature. Always available on the site. I would appreciate a subscribe, a like, a review on iTunes. Subscribe to every podcast we do, by the way, not just to the main feed. I appreciate any and all subscriptions, but if you really loved me, like some of my favorite listeners, you would subscribe to goddamn everything. So do that. All right? Good. Cool. I'll be back next week. Hopefully you're here with me because you know what happens then. We get together. You and I, and we get cultured. See ya.